very trendy and it's been sold an image and I'm not saying the image is real, real like you know I, I, I live a great life I can't deny it I'm you know I'm probably having more fun as a barrister than I ever did as a DJ but I love the law I love what I do I'm engaged with what I do I'm I'm not just here just for the show of it everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study Options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm an LLB law student, future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Mark Robinson, criminal barrister at Great James Street Chambers. Mark has gained a reputation as being a maverick who fiercely defends clients at court. But before his career in law, Mark was a BBC Radio One Extra presenter and professional DJ for over 20 years, playing throughout the UK, USA, Canada and Europe. He was also a music producer, having released an album with the Ministry of Sound and has been responsible for several high profile remixes of chart hits for artists such as David Guetta and Akon. During the episode, Mark and I discuss his unconventional route to the bar, the challenges that he has overcome, the benefits of being a mature student and career changer, And Mark also provides his opinion on the type of personality that is best suited for a career at the bar and also explains the current strike action being taken by the criminal bar. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast, Mark. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit hot, but I'm not complaining at all. I love the weather and, you know, it's a lovely sunny evening. I get to um, chat and ask you some really interesting questions. I hope so. Life is good. What about you? I'm just stuck in a hotel in Oxford um, doing a trial. Well, a trial actually crept, but then that's part one of the trial. There's another connected trial, so I'm going back in the morning. But um, nice air conditioning room. In fact, air conditioning is working a bit too well at the moment. But, um, yeah, it's it's all good. Nice pool. Yes, nice pool. I go to first thing in the morning, get the training in, 
then that's all good. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think that it would probably be best to kick off the show by asking you to introduce yourself and maybe you could tell us about your career history um, and what your practice involves at the criminal bar. All right. So I'm Mark Robinson, as you know, I'm a criminal barrister um, at Great James Street Chambers. Predominantly, I do criminal defence, but um, emerging areas, uh, as one might say, is um, inquest and inquiries, um, which I really want to um, develop. Um, I've also done extradition, although I'm not really feeling that anymore. It's a bit boring. Uh, I predominantly defend. Um, I used to do quite a bit of prosecution in the mags and I used to prosecute for transport for London licensing and um, I'm on the government legal department panel. Uh, but um, generally it's mostly Crown Court, um, 95% Crown Court defence practice. And obviously if you end up in the Court of Appeal, you do. And, and that's what I do. I've been doing that now. I've been called to the bar at the end of 2020. Before that, I was a solicitor, freelance criminal defence solicitor, advocate for all of... Ooh, five months. And then before that, I was obviously a training contract. I did my LPC at the same time. And before that, I was in Birkbeck Uni and I started Birkbeck 2015, graduated 2018 with a 2-1. I entered Birkbeck with no formal qualifications, no GCSE, no A-levels. And um, rather lucky, I think I took to law like a duck to water. But going on to the um, transition to the bar kind of thing, so I was freelance and when I was a freelance I came through in COVID which was um, a freelance police station accredited police station representative and I did all of that got admitted to the role of solicitors on the 1st of June 2020 and all this time I was working for different firms because of COVID loads of staff in the solicitors firms were furloughed so um, I was on a WhatsApp group that made loads of contacts did loads of work um, got sent to the mags doing mags trials within the first two weeks of qualifying as a solicitor did a really good job kept all the contacts and then um, met my chambers and that was slightly before that but they said they would help me um, transition over to the bar they wrote a letter to the BSB saying I'd got the prerequisite advocacy experience and at that time I think I did about 80 court cases before I did my transfer application I had my higher rights of audience as well which is kind of essential if you want to get an exemption as a solicitor to go to be a barrister and I did that and um, BSB gave me a total exemption from pupillage and all forms of academic training. So just for record, because it's always asked, I didn't have to do the, um, the the bar practice course or the bar professional training course or whatever it was called back then. I didn't do the bar transfer course, which is sometimes solicitors are asked to do that. I got exempted from all of that. No pupillage, no second six, no, no first six, no nothing. Literally, I had to get myself called to the bar and that was on the 30th of November, 2020. And then I was in chambers practicing from the 30th, sorry, the 1st of December 2020. And I've not looked back. And so obviously qualifying COVID was had its challenges because I was still doing a lot of stuff in the mags. But once COVID died down, I was able to do um, Crown Court trials quite a lot from I think February was my first one of 2021. And then I've I've lost count of how many Crown Court trials I've done now. I, I actually couldn't tell you. Okay. So I've got a lot of questions for you off the back of this. So I may as well at this point now rip up the rest of my interview questions because I just feel like we're just going to roll from this. 
why why did you choose to you mentioned that you got a training contract and more or less went down the solicitor route what made you decide to move over to the bar oh you wanted to be honest with that so I always wanted to be a barrister in the first place um when I started uni that was the intention um, to be a criminal barrister and then I I worked in an organisation called Spark to Life, and I used, it was a youth justice organisation. And so I'd, I worked alongside probation, a youth offending team, and sometimes the gangs unit, police of London Bar of Awful Forest. Worked with a lot of young offenders, helped them out, did their parole um, reports for them. I did sat on the MAPA panels, sat on intelligence panels, and I also helped remove um, gang nominals off the gang's matrix, but all criminal justice related. So I had an insight into what went on. Then whilst I was doing that, there was a young person I was working with who was at a, a, a prison. He asked me to go and get some documents from his solicitors. Um, I went down there to do as he asked, and this would have been helpful with his trial. I identified a particular document that would have been very helpful to his trial. Me and this, the partner of the firm got talking. He said, look, you know, I wouldn't mind you getting on board. Um, and... I can take one as a police rep or let me take you out to dinner. I said, look, I just want to go to the bar. I'm not really interested. He asked me a few times. In the end, I caved in, went to dinner and ended up offering me a contract, training contract. Now, I spoke to my friend who was at the bar and I wasn't really sure because I said, you know, I still would like to do pupillage and do things that way. He's like, look, training contract's there. It's on a plate. Do it because you might not get an offer of people as it takes time. And if you're not happy, just transfer. Um, I did that. My inn, which is in a temple, was very supportive. I, I took the leap of faith and I did it. And I must say, I was never really happy doing a training contract. It never felt right. I'm not someone, I'm not an office jockey. I don't like working in an office. I don't like being in the same place. Um, I always felt more comfortable when they'd send me out to do clerking. So I'd go up with cases that I, I put together and go out and shadow the barrister, sit behind them in Crown Court. And it was this great fun. I looked on in an awe and I thought, this is what I need to be. This is what I need to be doing. And so as soon as um, I got out of my training contract early, because I was so unhappy, when I did my seats, funnily enough, um, I was put under shadow, um, a barrister that's got kind of quasi-criminal law firm called, or not criminal, um, this civil immigration family, and it was called Black Antelope Law. And his name was Samar Paxicato, alongside um, Shaheen Mahmood. And they um, took me under their wing. Samar was, um, if I recall, he's a trainer at Gray's Inn, um, you know, first-class advocate. And he really taught me a lot about advocacy. And he had me do these advocacy exercises. So he made me go along to... Um, County Court, Shoreditch County Court. And I did a an application to do with housing for a possession order. And I did that, that went well. And then on my final day with him, he prepped me up to go to the family court. Where I did a whole hearing by myself. And I was in there the whole day doing it. But from that moment, I knew, look, this is it. I cannot stay any longer as a solicitor. I nearly walked out of my training contract there. And then <laughs> I even applied for the bar course and got accepted. But then something told me to carry on with the LPC, finish the training contract early and just continue on your journey. And then it all worked out rather well, as I've said. And then I met my chambers, gate crashed a Christmas party. They really liked me. They helped me out a lot. And um, the freelance stuff, and it all just came together. 
And as I said, it was really smooth. Applying for a transfer was smooth. I had my higher rights. That was smooth. And yeah, it's never been a debate in my mind. I was My trajectory was always the bar. I just didn't really plan it the way it happened. And, you know, I was all sold to just doing the bar course and getting a pupillage. But, you know, it is, it is what it is. I have no regrets. There's a lot of skills I've learned as a solicitor, um, especially client care, legal aid, billing. Um, it's all very good. Um, but, you know, advocacy is where it's at for me. A lot of people have problem with the work. I like lastminute.com. Yeah. I like that thrill of not always knowing where you're going to be. I like being on my feet and having to think on my feet quickly. I like legal problem solving. I like traveling. You know, everything about being a barrister kind of ticks the box for me. And it's even similar to my former career, as you may know. I was a professional DJ for many years. I was on BBC Radio on Extra. And the business model is kind of the same. And I say that for this, because as a barrister, you're self-employed. And um, you have clerks, as you know, they take care of your diary management, your billing. As a DJ, you'll have an agent. Agent is the same as a clerk. They take care of your diary. They may or may not get you work and they take care of your billing as well. They'll bring the money in for you. Also, um, I played all over the country as a DJ and, of course, around the world as well. And now I go all over the country. I mean, I'm in Oxford at the moment. I've done, I've done um, cases in Nottingham. I've got a case going on. I'm getting there Friday for a trial. I've, I've done a trial in Leeds, Stoke-on-Trent, Birmingham. And so I'm, I'm visiting, and Portsmouth as well. So I'm visiting a lot of the towns and cities that I visited whilst I was a DJ. So the travelling is not news. Being in hotels for extended periods of time, nothing is new. The business model is exactly the same. And so for me, there's no, when other people are moaning about it, for me, it's like, oh, same old, here we go again. Yeah. Performing audience as well. You know, the crowd, as it were, DJing, you perform into an audience. And as I love doing jury trials, like you perform in front of a jury. And it, it's the same thing. And depending what club you play at, you probably might switch the music up a bit. Depending what jury in front of, in what part of the country you perform differently and how you know how you present yourself and how you present the case. So London cases to me are always um different. London jury is always different to the rest of the country. And same was DJing in London was always a different experience to the rest of the country. So there are lots of similarities. And so that's why I'm kind of very comfortable uh, as a criminal barrister, because not that apart from knowing the law and have an, an, an innate knowledge of the law, not that much has changed business-wise for me. There seem to be, well, there are similarities, as you've just explained, um, with or between a career as a DJ and in the music industry and a career at the bar. So it does sound like to me that it's your personality that um, well, fits with both of these um both of these professions do you think however that you learnt skills in the music industry that you've been able to transfer to a career at the bar um and do you think that it is a good idea for people that aren't so perhaps natural um in public speaking um to to pursue something and perhaps a hobby that will get them you know in front of crowds? A lot of people that seem to come to the bar 
are naturally talented advocates. You know, I, I, maybe I was accused of this in the past, but maybe I've I've been told that I like the sound of my voice. So I've always been a, a chatterbox. Obviously, you, you couple that with actual knowledge um, is a good thing. I think mm-hmm. what transferable skills, I remember I was a DJ, so I never actually spoke. I wasn't an MC. So that's where, where the speaking came into. It was presenting on... Um, BBC, so I was trained to talk properly, um, trained to announce the Queen's death. Door. I think I did one news show or something like that where I read the daily newspapers for a breakfast show, um, and all these things are transferable skills. Um, but I was always kind of confident in in public speaking. Um, what came out of my mouth, whether it made sense is another thing. Obviously, going from BBC, you things just improved over time and so i i think i assumed that that was a skill set but i think my last job as well with the youth worker youth justice but all of it combined kind of helped but people who are scared of public speaking and don't like to talk um really i'm not discouraging anyone from being a barrister but really that's one of the main things is you're there to do advocacy there are some areas of the bar that do a lot less advocacy than others but ultimately you're expected to go to court at some stage regardless of what area you're in and talk and if you really don't like public speaking the question really is why would you want to be a barrister you could be a solicitor and work you know do litigation work behind the scenes have a highly lucrative career and and you know in the commercial sector um, the corporate sector, and there's loads of areas of law that not everything requires advocacy talking. So, I mean, you'd be given some kind of basic training as an advocate. I mean, you might not be actually the new SQE. I'm not sure if it demands it the same that LPC did. That did. And so, um, but yeah, most people you find come to the bar because they, they have the flair for advocacy. They want to do that public speaking. It seems to me that if you're coming, you want to be a barrister and you don't like public speaking, then you really need to ask yourself, why do you want to be a barrister? And you really need to put that lifestyle part and park it to one side because you can have that lifestyle as a very successful commercial solicitor, even maybe even more so if you're comparing the the commercial solicitor to maybe a criminal barrister. So I'm I'm just, that's, that's where I would go with it. Yeah, no, I do agree with you. I've done. Um, when I first started out at university, I um, was working at Radcliffe Chambers. So I was exposed to a lot of barristers. And I did explore the bar route before the solicitor and went to a couple of mooting, not competitions, but just like weekends. And I did have a go. And I was slightly terrified <laughs> at the beginning, but at the end, after um, completing a couple of days, I did feel a lot more confident. So um, I, I would just say it probably is worth just trying it if you are terrified. Um, and if at the end of it, you know, you still don't like it, then yeah, as you said, Mark, perhaps it's not for you. But sometimes I just feel like you, it's best to just face your fears head on and, and see what the, what the, actual reality is if 
if it's if the bar is not for you or if you've just got fears that you need to get over um so do check out your university's um moot yeah moot 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 mock trials moot mooting societies the moots are good um and it's an excellent way to test your advocacy skills debating societies as well um similar kind of skill set so you can see if it's really for you but and and moots are good but even if you are good at moots you still need to look at your reasons why you want to be a barrister and understand what the job actually entails and essentially mm-hmm. we are advocates and obviously written advocacy is very important and that's um, a lot of areas that you'll be asked to write opinions and drafting advices. And we do we do a bit of that in crime, but slightly less than our other um, areas of law where other barristers might practice. But the fact is, is that you're meant to have a very, very high standard of oral advocacy and it needs to be very good. And so, again, if you think that, oh, that's not my kind of thing, always look reasons you're doing something I a lot of people I see are caught up to wanting to be lawyers because it's they're not thinking about the actual law they don't love the law it's just the image and oh, I've got a law degree or I want to be a solicitor or a barrister and 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 it's become that kind of career that people not like the music industry or being a footballer, but it's just that it's become that kind of trendy, fashionable career. And, you know, maybe 20 odd years ago, it wasn't so trendy and fashionable and pupillage was easier to get because not everyone and their mum was trying to get a pupillage. And these things have become very trendy and it's... People have been sold an image. It's been sold an image. And I'm not saying the image is real. real. Like, you know, I, I, I live a great life. I can't deny it. I'm... You know, I'm probably having more fun as a barrister than I ever did as a DJ. You know, so you figure that one out. But I'm saying I love the law. I love what I do. I'm engaged with what I do. I'm in, uh, you know, the law, the whole thing. I'm not just here just for the show of it. It's actually have an interest in law. You know, I have client care. I really enjoy the job. I enjoy the challenges of advocacy, you know, legal research. I enjoy the whole thing across the board. And there's no element of it that I don't like. In fact, the more complex the case and the more I'm scared of it, the more the better for me because the, be- the better the challenge and I try to rise to the challenge. But again, if you can't deal with those kind of things and oh, I just want to be a barrister, then you really need to have a look and, and and assess your career choice. And when I was at Birkbeck, for example, there was, I recall the first day I, I enrolled in the, the giant hall, which was in Quaker's house. There was about maybe 800 to 1,500 people in that hall. It was, it was packed. It was like a club event. And by the time I graduated, there was about 300 people left. Wow. So everyone, everyone wants to do a law degree. Everyone's, you know fix it's the done thing but you know if you've not got the metal to do it and then even people that have done the law degree it's been so tough on them that they can't progress to the other level to do you know um the, the lpc as it was then on the bar course and are you doing law for the right reasons having a i don't i don't see the point i mean i'm not academic person if i'm honest I, now i am but i wasn't then and i never saw the point of having a degree just for the sake of it. 
Do you know what I mean? So I'm not trying to dissuade anyone, but always look at your reasons, underlying reasons why you're doing something. And doing something because you think it's some bougie lifestyle is not really a good reason to do something. And you'll get found out. Yeah. And you won't be successful getting a pupillage. Or you won't be successful getting um, a training contract because the, the interviewers will, will, will see that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything that you're saying. I think you've just given really fantastic advice. Um, I do think that the career that you're pursuing has to really excite you and you have to have that kind of like rush of feelings when you are, you know, when you have been handed that case or that um, problem question to solve. I do think that people have to have or should have other interests as well and and life shouldn't all just be about work. Um um, and what you were saying as well about doing your degree, absolutely agree with you there as well. I mean, I came out of school um, after doing my GCSEs and went into a career and then only just went to um, returned to education about 10 years after um, and and did my law degree. I will say, though, that the skills that I have learned from going to university have um, massively improved just you know, just my writing, my speaking, everything. So I do think that education is so important. It doesn't, I don't think it necessarily think it matters what you do. Um, But I do think that the skills that you learn from university are very beneficial, no matter what kind of like walk of life you go down. Yeah. You did mention Birkbeck before and that you um, enrolled with only a few GCSEs. Am I right in saying that? No GCSEs, no GCSEs. Okay. So would you be able to explain to the listeners how you were able to enroll onto an LLB without the traditional entry requirements? Oh, so I was a mature student. So it was all my life experience, you know, being at BBC. I mean, look. I didn't do nothing in school and I um, I kind of got booted out. I was, I was excluded. I didn't bother getting back. I, you know, I think I sat one GCSE on maths and got an F for failure. <laughs> but um, I did some kind of qualifications in college, like English for business languages, did all right. I did um, a computing course. I did um, personal, I'm qualified personal trainer, even though I went up to level two. I, um, what else did I did? I've done counselling skills um, because I was thinking about doing um, psychotherapy or psychology, um, getting a degree in that. And so all of these things kind of helped, but ultimately I I was given some tests at Birkbeck to some analysis of a case called, I think it was the Morak, and I did really well. And then the um, lecturer, the doctor at the time, she... Um, was impressed and she offered me a place over the phone said yeah, you're very very good and um, you know mate, law was just where I was going I mean I'm sure you know about how I ended up even deciding on the, this, this this pathway into law and it's kind of an, an old story now but I, I've told it a thousand times go on you're going to have to tell us refresh our memories I, I said, yeah I was forced to accused of assault <clears throat> on someone and I ended up um being charged with it, going all the way to Woolwich Crown Court. And I, the barrister who I'd instructed's case overrun, so I decided to represent myself. Got hungry the first time, 
And then I'll, I did it all again by myself, quit the second time. I say by myself, I had a solicitor's firm behind me, but I was essentially my own barrister in court. Um, the first trial, um, I took the complainant apart with all the lies and um, did a bad character application on them. And funnily enough, the prosecutor um, took off his wig after I finished my cross-examination at the end of the day and he put his went to put his wig on my head and said, you need to do this for a living. Wow. You know, you're, you're that good. And um, I was like, whatever. And then the second trial, just before I was acquitted, um, a barrister who's now in my chambers, she came up to me and said, listen, I've been watching you in and out all week. You're that good. And, you you know, she was um, a, a church minister. She goes, you know, God has shown me that you need to do this. And it's not about what you may or may not have done, but you, this is something where you, this is the pathway you need to be on. And you just need the training. Funnily enough, after the acquittal, the, the officer who arrested me told me about being a police st- accredited police station rep. I never knew about that before. And this was the police officer that nicked me. Then um, the, the solicitors were behind me. They took me on and, and agreed to take me on as a trainee police station, uh, professionally police station representative. And then, yeah, I, I ended up with a training contract with another firm, but it was all these little things that kept on happening to me. I had no intention of ever doing a degree in no subject. That wasn't on my radar. And then um, I was told by the solicitor's firm that maybe I should do Silex legal, um, criminal litigation level one. And obviously, as we a lot of people don't know, but child legal executives are another entry into the profession. Many solicitor's firms are backed up with child legal executives. To me, there's not much difference with the roles of a solicitor and child legal executive, save for that officers have slightly more rights of audience. Obviously, barristers have all the rights of audience. Listeners have some. They get more if they do the higher rights of audience. Silex have to do advocacy exam, and they get the same rights as a solicitor in the lower courts. Now, so I'd, I went to do that. The college I was going to enroll to didn't um, have dyspraxia, so it's developmental coordination disorder. They couldn't accommodate me, so they said, look, Maybe try Birkbeck because you can get disabled student allowance. So I tried there, I enrolled, and as I said, I did that test and I was taken on. But everything was like random and I just went with it. Like it was, I never ever wanted to be a lawyer. I never watched suits. I never watched silks. I never watched Crown Court. In 2014, when all this madness was happening with my court case, I didn't know the difference between a solicitor and a barrister. Mm. I didn't know the, role, the roles, I didn't know about law. I just thought it was the right thing to do to represent myself and it paid off and look where I am now. Look, eight years later, I'm at the bar. So it's um it's a massive yeah, achievement. It's just it was never, you know, I've never been one of them. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I, you know, I, I, I actually didn't care. Even when I was doing the degree, I was just like times like, all right, I'm I'm doing this, but why am I actually here? Why am I doing this? And well, look, I'll give it a go. And then I got my first year grades and it was really good. And then went on to do my second year grades and it was really good. And I ended up graduating with a high two one. Dismissed that on a first by a 0.8%. Still fuming, but... <laughs> I was going to say, not that you're counting. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, it's um, you know, a massive achievement. I accept that. I won an award at Birkbeck and um, they paid most of my fees for my LPC. Excellent. And so, and I won I won two awards whilst I was there. One for a career shifter, and then the next was all these fees. And then recently, Bert Beck have honoured me by putting um, a life-size portrait of me 
in the main hall. So I have to go down there and see that. I saw that. I saw that. Next time I'm there, I'm going to go and um, I will. Take a selfie. I'll take a selfie next to it, I suppose. I mean, what else, what else should I do? I mean. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. It, you know, it's, it's been such an amazing journey. Again, um, chambers have been absolutely great. Um, Great James Street of, I mean, great in the name, great by name, great by nature. And they've really um, given me a good home and a good platform to really launch my career. And it's um, it's it's just been with rocket boosters. I mean, how quick I've been in the Crown Court as a junior so young and the kind of cases that I'm taking on at the moment have been in, insane. I mean, I, I'm on... I've been instructed for how many rapes I've I've, do, I've done. Fire, fire, I'm on my second firearms case. Loads of drugs conspiracies. Um, loads of Section 18s all the time, um, and everything else in between. And um, I, I nearly had a brief for my first murder. However, because it's no returns at the moment, I couldn't take the brief. Obviously, the bar is at um, action at the moment, so. Um, Somewhat disappointing, but you know that will come. But um, it's been, it's it's really been an amazing journey, and it's been in such a short space of time as well. So I was going to say it's been two years, like two and a half years. You've done so much in such a short amount of time. I really wanted to talk to you about uh, Birkbeck because mm. a question that I get asked quite a lot is um how do I well how did I go as I've just asked you from not many GCSEs to university while still working and I mean if I enrolled to a traditional university then I may not have been able to work or had that support and I just wanted to get your um, opinion on or your experience on the on the difference between um, I suppose your education at secondary school and the support that you had at Birkbeck was there more support at Birkbeck than you than a traditional kind of educational um, institution? Yeah, well, I got no support whatsoever in my secondary school. I went to school in the 80s so you know they didn't even know what dyspraxia was yeah by the time I went to Birkbeck yeah there was it was well known neurodiverse spectrum dyslexia was big on on the map so it was 
the support was overwhelming and I had an excellent um, study skills support tutor called Ash Phipps who really taught me how to write essays and legal writing. Before that, I really didn't have a clue. You know, I could just about probably write a sentence together. And it wasn't that bad. Mm. Honestly, it wasn't that good. She taught me so much. So big up Ash Phipps. And she, she was really instrumental. And I, and I still deploy a lot of those skills now when I'm drafting. You know, your work really has to be on point when it comes to legal drafting. So um, she's helped a lot. Um, and, um, yeah, I think support-wise, extra time in exams, loans on books. I managed to get a MacBook out of them, although I had to pay the difference. I got a Mac with all assistive technology, things like Dragon. I think after a while I stopped using those things, but it, it really helped me get through the study period. And so I was, you know, I can't knock the support. That, that yeah. I and I had a special study room as well where you get two hours, but what would happen? I'd go there at night or I'd go there in on Sunday and then double book, get four hours. And I was in there, lock myself away, listen to classical music and just bang up the essays. And it and it really it really paid off. So it was very, it was very good. A lot more support now. But I mean, I've worked in a lot of schools since. I do mentoring in schools. What I find is the support is there for those students now, the younger people. And obviously, with eight, you know, the eighties, we were talking thirty odd years ago. So it's a big change, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I just want to make sure that point gets driven home that. People shouldn't feel afraid to um, pursue a career in law because they're worried about their education at university and if they're not going to have their support because there are universities that are out there that will help you achieve your full potential. Um, And, you know, I've got dyslexia and I was offered all of that stuff that you had, Mark, the dragon, the the two-hour support uh, the two hours quiet room in the library um it's a good job that you and I were not at Burberry at the same time because I do that trick as well you know so <laughs> we would have been fighting for the oh room. what the two hour room thing <laughs> the two hour double room double book in the room and trying to get extra two hours <laughs> going into A and then going into B so you get like four hours four hours yeah it was great um but don't worry guys I'm leaving in just a few months so you won't have to um battle me out of the room <laughs> um so what do you think are the advantages of being a mature student and a career changer um are when applying for well I'm going to say training contracts and maybe pupillage but they say that you didn't apply for pupillage so any advice that you have there would be um all right so Mature student is you're able to concentrate more. Obviously, studying at my time of life, I was going for a specific reason. You know, when you're young, a lot of people go to university because it's just a done thing. And it's a great thing. It's great to have that degree in your back pocket and, you know, travel the world and, you know, still live off the bank of mum and dad. But as a mature student, you really need, it's good to have a game plan, which I did have. Um, I was 100% focused, I was determined, and I knew what I had to do and kind of, not saying I became obsessed by it, but I was like, when I was in the study zone and exam period, I wouldn't go out, I wouldn't drink, you know, I was I was 100% focused and disciplined. I think your focus is more when you're a more mature, more mature student, you know what you want, especially if you're doing it to be a career shifter, you know that you need to get that particular qualification to shift your career. So that's going to be your motivation. In terms of training contracts and 
pupillages. Um, I do think that in terms of pupillage, they like pupils with life experience. There's two lots of pupils, as I see. You've got the people who are young, who did, went bar school, stellar grades, Oxbridge, they get it quite early. Or you've got the people who are maybe they're not the best grades, but they were policemen, you know, um, you know, they were a nurse, a teacher, you know, a professional in another area. And then they've decided to do the bar course and then they'll get pupillage because it's that life experience they bring to the table. People like, and I, again, I get the cases, I suppose I do, and confidence in my clients because I, you can see, although... I'm always told I don't look my age. The fact is that you know that I'm not no 21-year-old and, and wet behind the ears. So I, I instill that confidence in people. And older people come into the bar, welcome. I mean, another guy who went to Birkbeck with Mr. Christian Fox, a good friend. He was a year above me in Birkbeck. He's a, a barrister as well in another chambers in, in Kent. He does um, housing um, and family and civil. Very successful and uh, again, he was a farmer, a dairy farmer before, and a military captain before that. So, life experience. I've met um, another DJ who's at the bar. There were there were all manner of people doing all manner of kind of things at the bar, and they've all come into it late. And so it's it's a good thing. You know, the young lot generally the traditional route uni, but it's about the grades. And unfortunately, the Oxbridge crowd always seem to get people in straight off the bat wherever they go, um, especially at like if they come to the criminal bar, it's always a race to get those kind of people. And then the further you go up into it, the Oxbridge crowds get the pick of it. That's that's just how the bar is. I don't agree with it, but it is what it is. Um, in terms of trailing contracts, now that is interesting because you get a lot of the younger people do seem to go for the training contracts in the commercial firms. I do sense that the commercial firms like younger people because they can abuse them more, keep them in the office um, longer. And, and and I'll say that, I'm being honest. Yeah. Like the older, right, so the kind of the way them commercial firms seem to work, they like young people with no responsibilities. You can work, they can get their pound of flesh out of you. And you're there and you're all for the firm. Someone who maybe applied. It would be interesting to see someone who was a say, single mum with two children apply for a trading contract in the city firm and see if she got that. I'd be surprised. It's not right, but, you know, you've got more chance of if you've got the grades coming to the bar than that kind of firm because I just know how they work. Um, of course, what... I've, you know, and when I was a solicitor, I did talks, I spoke about this a lot, and I still feel the same way as this. When you want your will looked after, or maybe you want to do some conveyancing, or maybe you want your passport signed, you're not going to a magic circle firm to do that. You're going on your high street firm. There are approximately maybe more than 150,000 solicitors on the roll. Most of them do not work in magic circle firms. They can be found on your local high street, your immigration, family, conveyancing, wills and probate, all these little areas of law, these firms are there in your community. They run in exactly the same way as a commercial firm, although maybe the remuneration may not be the same. 
just like I walked in off the street randomly and I spoke to the partner of the firm and I ended up the training contract. It's not hard to walk in, have your CV, law student, ask some experience, ask for some unpaid work experience or whatever relationship you form, you could ask for, apply for a paralegal position, get a training, that contract that way. And those firms are all ava- always available and they're always looking for people. And people overlook the high street firms, but it's they're everywhere. You know, barristers, there's not... How many barristers is there? there Apparently, there's meant to be 5,000 practicing barristers, maybe less. Compare that to, you know, 150,000 solicitors. Do you know, it's an an awful lot of of solicitors compared to the amount of practicing barristers. So do the maths. Think of how many there are and how many firms there might be in all the different areas of law and some niche things they're specialising in. So, you know, people look outside the box. And I found that older people did look outside the box. When when I was at London Met and I did my LPC there, most of us, were all of us had training contracts or on the verge of getting one. And um, no one was in a top commercial firm. Everyone was in, you know, boutique firms on the high street. Some central London, some not, but it was all boutique, small firms doing various law and so it's um it's definitely a consideration it's 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 slightly easier but people just need to think outside the box unfortunately what i found with a lot of law students everything's silver circle magic circle or becoming a barrister and nothing else is regarded and and there's so much more to law than than this and so i encourage people to look beyond what's being advertised and you know it's out there if you really want it especially training contracts yeah yeah definitely thank you for sharing that um so we touched on earlier about how to get experience in becoming confident and excel um when you know doing things like advocacy but how do you think um aspiring barristers can become confident and excel in advocacy apart from doing things like mooting is there any other tips or tricks that you have confidence in advocacy i mean look i'll be honest with you i didn't know jack until i was on my feet you know i Mm. I didn't realize until the first day i went to court when i didn't even know how to fill out a a, a, we call it a pet form it's preparation effective trial form preparation for an effective trial form which is what you do when you have a trial in the magistrate's court I had to ask my friend how to do that and she was a solicitor you to me all the stuff you learn in law school no matter how much mooting you do you will never ever really understand it until you're on your feet whereas in your face you've got magistrates or judges yelling at you where you're under pressure where you've got clients where you know you if you're doing crime you're risking someone going to custody it's all about doing it for real and no matter what advice i give about shadowing someone and doing many pupillages which is good many pupillages are excellent and you can observe what people do but doing it yourself doing the real deal is is a million miles apart it's the ultimate rush but I've learned that until I was actually on my feet I actually knew nothing and so everything's been a process where the more I've gone to court the more I've learned the better you become and there's, there's still a lot to learn I'm still very junior but again I think in terms of trying to get you 
there. You need to get there to, to understand it. And so the key really to get there is not necessarily how good an advocate you are in the beginning. You've just got to be able to be hot when you do your interview. If you're that confident and you're that good at interview, then, then you, you have a better chance of getting a pupillage. And so, again, and probably the same applies for a training contract. A lot of people are brilliant advocates, but if you don't interview well, you're just not going to get a pupillage. And there's other people whose advocacy may leave a bit to be desired, but they interviewed really well. They had the skills to interview well. They did interview training. Instead of worrying about advocacy training, they did the interview training. Remember, when you go for an interview, you're not there to be an advocate. You're there to interview well. Yes, you might be asked to do an advocacy exercise. That might be asked a specific set of questions. It may be they'll see how you answered that question. It might be a written exercise, but the point is, is that it's about you interviewing confidence and letting your personality shine through. And so if I were talking to my younger self and I didn't have the training contract and did it, the way I did, I'd say to myself, make sure I do as much interview technique classes as possible because that's the key. long as you interview well, you'll get through. If you don't, then it doesn't matter how great you are. And unless you're coming with um, some Oxbridge qualifications, which they might, you know, let, let the interview slide, it's, it's all about your interview technique. Um, so would you be able to tell us about one of your most memorable cases, perhaps like what the facts of the case were and the procedural history um, and why it was memorable? For uh, yeah, right. There's a few, but I'll give you a little down on one of mine that I will never forget. So it was Isleworth Crown Court, a 74-year-old man tried with sexual assault, um, accused of pinching his colleague's bottom in the canteen area over lunchtime. This was a man who worked for the company um, for 46 years. He came here from Jamaica in the early 70s, and he worked with that company since 1974. Everyone loved him, never a disciplinary record, no, no convictions, never been arrested in his life, did everything by the book. Then he's, this woman just accuses him of pinching her bottom. Now, got to court. And the prosecution had the managers as witnesses. The, uh, the complainant gave an account, wasn't very good, but the prosecution came in um, with their other two witnesses and the managers totally ab- obliterated the complainant. Um, basically, they they there was another person that was backing the complainant. He'd been sacked. And then the complainant, um, was just undermined completely by the prosecution's own witnesses. Every minute the trial had to be kept um, had to kept on b- being stopped because of the evidence that they were reducing about her to the point they were saying, look, their own mate, the central manager refused to be in a room with this woman. She made up false allegations before. None of this, of course, the judge allowed in. And it got to the point it got ridiculous. Um, the complainant, I'm sorry, the defendant gave his evidence and he was so lovely, understand, he was just like, he, the jury really warmed to him. Um, he said about how everyone liked him. And even, you know, the, the managers that gave, were prosecution witnesses, supported him. And so in my speech, I said about how, look, you'd be um, not faulted into thinking that there was only two prosecution witnesses in this case, but there was actually four. And no, 
that two of the prosecution witnesses on what they say about the complainant and what they say about the defendant. And I just went to town on the prosecution. And it was so bad that even the prosecutor herself kind of gave up on the case. The police officer said, look, we're not, we want nothing to do with it. We, you know, they, they, they knew the score. Did my speech, lasted for a while. All the jury were nodding their head in agreement. And then they went out to deliberate. They came back in 14 minutes. Then the unanimous not guilty verdict. Wow. It took about 10 minutes just to walk to the jury room. So they don't want to that Right. 14 okay. minutes. <laughs> and the judge, after you know, usual moaning, a bit a bit critical about my advocacy because I referred to the um defendant as his first name. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to humanize him. I wanted to, this is a person, he's not just mm. Mr. What. What, what's his name is you know and so I conveyed that across but the judge came in I mean sorry the, they returned the not guilty verdict and the judge said you know release that man from the dock and so he was released all the family came running out of the, the of the public gallery screaming crying and he's burst out a big cry he'd been on bail for two years that all everyone was crying so his family were crying he was crying saying I told you I didn't do it I didn't do it and then um, all the jurors started crying because they knew that all it was mostly women. They were all crying. They were blowing kisses and waving. I was sat there and I had to fight back the tears myself. Me and the prosecutor just stood there. I was just like this. I, I was like, I was ready to go start crying. It was so emotional. The jurors were like, even when they went back, um, the jury, the jury officer said everyone was in the room still. They were all crying. And it was it was the most emotionally charged trial I've ever done. They was I just will never forget that all the jurors were waving at the guy, blind kisses, and and it, it was something to behold that this wicked woman could just make up so much. And you knew it was lies. Even the police, everyone knew it was just a bag of bull. Like how you ever got charged? It was so horrible, and um, it, it was an, it was one of the most emotional cases. I'll never forget that man. And I got glang reference or for, for my work I did with that guy in the firm as well but it it was really yeah it was it was one of them ones but I, I've done tons you know good cases and some are more emotional than others but um that's probably what sticks to mind I think I've done many trials that I wouldn't sometimes you win and it's like whatever but that was one of those ones where you know I felt good yeah yeah sounds very heartwarming and I'm not surprised it's one of your most memorable cases. I think we've mentioned during the podcast that the criminal bar is on strike to a degree. Um, and I was just wondering if you could please explain the reasons uh, for our listeners why the strike action um, has taken place and why do you think that they've chosen to do it now? Specifically? Right, so the, the new head of the Criminal Bar Association, Joe Sidhu, took over a couple of years ago. Uh, he called on government for action. Things got worse. Now, what happened over the backlog, things got even worse. A load of people left the criminal bar. I mean, I swear, when I was starting out my journey, there was recorded to be about, yeah, and I think so. My barrister count earlier was wrong, a correction. It's 15,000 practicing barristers. And I believe there used to be 5,000 criminal barristers. Now there's 2,300. Okay. 
And so there's not enough of us to do the work. We, we, you know, I've got my diaries kind of full until August next year, 2023. I've got trials listed to January 2024. Wow. I've got one case which was committed in 20, when 2019, he's still not, and that was one of my first briefs, briefs I ever took, still not due for trial next year. And that was literally. And so I think that what's happened is that people have had enough barristers have left. So it was that time to increase the pain. Now, look, there's been cuts through previous governments. There was cuts last year. There was cuts um, in 2013. It's not a political thing. Labour was just as bad. You know, um, criminal defence legal aid is not a vote winner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, it's the poorest in our society that are often dealing with these criminal things. But... um, not a vote winner, so they've cut it to the bone. And a lot of people were struggling making a living at a criminal bar, especially junior juniors. And, you know, the magistrate's pay is atrocious, like, for, like, the basic appearance is £50. And even then, you've got to wait until the solicitor pays the money. They can take forever to pay. It's the same with a magistrate's trial, half-day, £75. Full day, £150. Takes forever to get paid. It's not good. And... um I think that, that it's just pushed things to the brink. I mean, again, we get we do an awful lot of prep work. We don't get paid for that. You get one briefly. Other areas like family and, and any private paid work is a huge difference. And so, I mean, the bigger cases you do, don't get me wrong, the better money you get. So the frauds, the murders, they pay well. They pay very, very well. But um, in terms of uh, what we should get, it, it should honestly be more. So we had enough. It was the right time. The backlog needs to be cleared by someone. And so Joel just felt that it was the right time. And so um, we've asked for a 25% increase because over real time, over the last 20 years, we've had a 28% pay cut. Um, So, but what's on offer by the government is 15% pay increase from all new cases from, I think, September, October. But then the way it works is often with the backlog, there's no trials being... By the time you get to September, October, your trial's going to be next year, um, maybe 2024, which means you're not going to see that money after you build your case until 2023, 24. And a bit about how barristers work from legal aid perspective. Um, you don't get paid until the conclusion of your case. Whereas um, private work may differ, but as okay. crime... The legal aid agency pays us at the conclusion of the case, which is one of two things or three things. It's either the Crown offer no evidence, and then you get you can bill it. Um, you enter a guilty plea and get sentenced, you can bill it, or you wait to the conclusion of a trial, then you can bill it. And they're the three ways, but it's all about waiting. Obviously, and I do so many cases, I'm always billing something. That's not the issue, but um, if you don't have such a busy practice, it's a problem. Mm. And uh, again, it's um, how much we do, um, you know, goodwill. The first thing of action was no returns, where we don't cover other people's work. So my cases are my cases, and don't do anyone else's work. And I was covering an awful lot of people's cases before. I mean, I don't know how I did it, because my caseload is nothing's changed since no returns. I'm as busy as I ever was. Um, I think, well, that from people just starting out, 
they and like I did, I relied on returns. Like the first three, first five Crown Court trials I did were returns from other barristers, and um, you cut your teeth with other people's work that they they can't do or they don't want to do. And so um, that kind of is preventing them from getting work. But then those people that are starting out are the ones that need the pay increase the most. And we want fresh talent coming in. And so people need to get proper remunerated. And it's not done. I mean, criminal pay is shocking compared to what commercial, you know, lawyers would get. Even family bars much better off than us. Um, you know, having said that, we I think we still do better than solicitors. I mean, yeah. solicitors pay duty solicitors is, is really quite bad, especially newly qualified. You'd be looking at could be 25 grand, 30 grand. First few years, it's 34 grand. It's not good. Um, and then you work your way up to your 40 grand, 45 grand, over time, right. 50 grand. I mean, generally, a criminal barrister could do a lot better than that. But obviously, it depends how your practice is, what you're doing. Is it a mix of prosecution and defence? There's so many variables. But, yeah, ultimately, we, we, we formed a view that there needs to be an increase. Again, I'm, 15% in the current climate is, is not bad, but the cuts we've sustained over a longer period of time need to be rectified. And so I think the action is right and it's, it's proportionate. And and, and um, hopefully the government will take us very seriously. Like it's, it's you know the public don't seem to know a lot about us and what we do. And what people have to understand is, just like I found out, is that you don't have to be some career criminal or anything like that. Just this twist of fate, and you end up needing a lawyer and end up in court. You know I wasn't looking for anything. And look what happened to me. Yeah, that guy that I represented. Never been in trouble in his life, yeah. 74 years old. He ended up needing me. You know, you could be driving your car tonight down the high street, and um, a six-year-old runs out in front of the car, hot weather. You run that child over, witnesses say you were driving too fast. Next minute, you get done for dangerous driving. You end up in the Crown Court because the magistrates refuse jurisdiction. Yeah, You need a barrister, and you need a competent barrister to represent you. And you know, people think I can't be me, but it could easily be you. It's all too easy in life. So again, this country yeah. prides itself on our court system and justice. And think the central thing is the, the criminal courts because uh, good democracy is founded on the law courts and, and often that law has got to be doing right from wrong. I think that's... Crime is probably the most important area, linchpin of law. Forget about all the human rights and the employment and commercial and all that. Crime is the most central to a normal functioning democratic society. And you see other areas have based their legal system on this, this other common law systems. But think of it this way. When you watch TV and you watch legal dramas, silks, all of these things, where are they always based? It's not no civil litigation set. It's not no, you know, commercial. It's not the Chancery Bar. It's not no immigration bar. It's not no, you know, some corporate deal, sealing the deal. Where's all these legal dramas? Crime. Where do all the press love to report? 
this person's got a sentence, this murderer, this rapist, this terrorist. It's always crime. The media, they fetishize us. They love it. But yet we get knocked for asking for a proper bit of pay. There would be no half the TV shows. There would be no entertainment if it wasn't for us. It's the bar. It's crime. It's criminal lawyers. We're all criminals. It's, it's, it's both of us. Do you know what I mean? You know, you're not seeing mm-hmm. someone, some bougie case about someone yeah. trying to sort out his will. It's always crime. And that's what you see. When people think of barristers, you don't think of some guy sitting in his chambers drafting an opinion of, on quantum. You think about a barrister in a wig and gown in a Crown Court conducting the jury trial. And the only trials that do jury trials is crime. Maybe sometimes defamation, uh, like libel and that, but I'm not sure there was that, um, that those footballers' wives trials recently at the high court i'm not sure i was actually doing a trial there that day but i'm not sure whether they had a jury but um most cases it's it's always jury trials are a crime people love that but again we get so poorly paid you know everyone's up in arms about victims and people should go to prison and this murder or this paedophile but who's going to hear these cases it's juries and who's going to run these cases? It's, it's barristers. And the thing about it is, is that low barristers most prosecute and defend. So you're cussing people off for, oh, defense, they're, you know, greedy. Who do, it's the same people that are doing the prosecution work. It's the same people that are ensuring that that defendant goes to jail for life without parole for the most heinous of crime. So people knock us and they have no understanding of the profession is very, very frustrating, the public perception of us. And we um, we, we, we don't make, make masses and masses of, of money. Yes, you can make a decent living doing it, but it's not what it should be compared to the work that we actually do and are part of a functioning democratic society. So therefore it is right and it is proper that we strike. Now is the time, if not now, then never, and managed to bring the government to the table. There's talks going on tomorrow, yeah. on the 19th of July, and we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, it, it couldn't carry on how, how it was. Yeah, yeah. I think that you have um, given a lot of, um, well, I think you've given us a lot of uh, information there to think about, and it, it really just kind of, I mean, I read this, what's going on in the newspapers, as I'm sure many people do. And you always hear people go, oh, yeah, it's a shame they deserve to be paid more um, and all that kind of stuff. And then you turn the page and it's on to something else. But I think that everything that you've just said really, really just drives at home that that could be you. And I think that you've given us a lot to think about there and yeah, and clearly um, the criminal bar and um, solicitors deserve to get paid um, a hell of a lot more, especially what with what's going on in the you know current climate. What with this crazy inflation, it's just I I don't understand how they can be paid so little. You know, it's it's a tough job, and I think that they need to be paid you know adequately in order to take care of their health and well-being so that they can turn up to work and represent their clients to the best of their ability so thank you for for sharing all of that with us um so throughout the podcast you have given us so much advice you know 
studies, professional um, advice, and, you know, in the last question, I think a lot of life lessons as well. Um, but do you have any final words of advice or wisdom to share with us before I let you go? Words uh, of wisdom? Well, not really. If you're on this journey, just don't get up. It, get, give up. It can get very tough at times, especially with the studies, but just focus on the goal. The reason I got through my studies is because I focused on the end goal and it paid off and there's you know just don't limit yourself like you know everyone wants to be a barrister everyone wants to be at the magic circle firm there's so other many other ways to access the profession sometimes you can get a pupillage in a high street firm you know government legal department cps higher um more people just for crime than anywhere else. Although it's prosecution work, they take on more women. They take on more non-white women. Um, you know, it's very diverse. Has this government legal department? They're not on this Oxbridge thing at all. Again, you you've got all these high street firms. There's so much opportunities out there, but people really need to think outside the box. And ultimately, as a lawyer, when you are qualified, you're paid to think outside the box. You are. But, you know, a lawyer is just a, a problem solver of law. And, and essentially, that's what my job is. I, I go in and I solve my client's problems in the best way I can and try to achieve the best possible result. And no matter what area of law you're doing, that is kind of the goal, whether it's family law, whether it's, you know, um, civil litigation, you know, or small claims, personal injury. It's about achieving the best possible result for your client and, and that's what we're here to do and so again you thinking outside the boxes apply that to your whole journey in law and also you know study hard don't you know when I was studying I was in the thick of my studies I, I studied like my life depended on it and you must do the same you need to have the grades if you really want to make a difference and you are aiming for the bar or you are um, aiming for um, a, a magic circle firm then, you know, unless you're in Oxbridge or you've been to Harvard or Yale, only a first will do. Maybe Kings or those elite Russell, the Russell groups, you might get away with a T1. But most of the time, honestly, only a first will do. So you know, T1 is the T1 is now the new first. And so the first is it's kind of really stands you out. So you really need to 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 study, take it very seriously. So yeah, that's it for me. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your advice. Um, and I think that you've probably solved a lot of people's problems just by coming on the podcast today and for, you know, talking about your career history and the reasons why you decided to pursue a career at the bar and why you decided to study at Birkbeck. So um, thank you so much for, you know, sharing all of your knowledge and for being a guest on the podcast. I've had a great time chatting with you um, and I hope you'll come back again in the future and we can we can talk more about all your memorable cases, the ones that are yet to come. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you to everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Student Lawyer Podcast. And we'll see you back here again next time. To hear more of the Student Lawyers Podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.